0: Uh, We have an amazing passage this morning where we see Paul doing something rather very mundane, but in a very amazing way. In our passage, Paul is having to make a very hard decision. Uh, More importantly for our benefit, though, we get to see the process in which Paul makes this decision that's actually linked to, to the definition of life. Now, as we learned last week, it's not our circumstances of life that determine whether or not we can keep our joy, but it's the definition of life that determines whether or not we can keep and experience joy. We saw through Paul's own circumstances from which a conventional perspective, we would expect him to be someone who loses all joy. His career as a church planner comes to an abrupt end. He's treated like a criminal insurgent, and he's facing execution. Any one of those would tempt any one of us to lose our joy. But Paul, he says, as we learned last week, this this is not a problem. It is not going to destroy him. You see, Paul sees God is working, more importantly, Paul recognizes and reminds us that his life is not defined by his circumstances, but that Christ is the definition of his life. And because Christ is untouchable, unassailable, immovable, and unbreakable, so is Paul's life as well. Now last week, we ended with this statement from Philippians 1.21, which is this phenomenal declaration of Paul. It's one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, certainly from the book of Philippians. For to me, to live is Christ, and die is gain. That is not just one of the most powerful expressions in the New Testament, but it's also one of the most profound. You think about it. Nothing is more common to us than our impulse to live but nothing is more uncommon than to know what to live for the two are not the same so as we begin our study of this sec- section of philippians we have to ask ourselves a very important question it's the question i think that begs it comes from us is what do you live for I'm going to let that breathe for a second, because that's not just something I want to say and just move on. But think about it. What do you live for? You realize most people do not consciously ask or answer that question. And that's pretty sad. The Greek philosopher Plato said the unexamined life is not worth living. Centuries later, the French existentialists believe that the person that does not examine their life is not really living, they're merely existing. That's why I quoted the humanist Rollo May two weeks ago when he said that most people are living their lives on scraps of meaning. In other words, people in our culture aren't living their lives out of some grand kind of great meta-narrative. They're kind of going through life and they're grabbing bits of meaning here, a little fulfillment over there, and they're all kind of putting them together and it doesn't matter if it all works or not, it only matters that the individual likes it. And so they're going through life kind of jamming all these bits of meaning and purpose together hoping unconsciously that some tragedy or something severe doesn't come by and just knock it all over. Now this isn't uh, just something that we might say that non-believers experience. I know many Christians do the same thing. Little Bible study here, little religious stuff here, little involvement there, kind of jam it together, whether or not it makes any sense or not, It doesn't really matter until tragedy hits or something severe causes someone to reflect on their life. When someone lives like that, almost by definition, the circumstances of life inevitably become what's so important because there's not an overarching definition of life that helps them make sense of all the stuff they've put together. As we saw with Paul last week, defining life correctly helps you make sense of all the stuff in our lives, the good or the bad, whether that stuff is your career coming crashing down, suffering unfairly, or even facing death itself, like Paul is in our passage this morning. So again, the question is, what do you live for? Let that breathe. What do you live for? The reason that's so important is because the way you answer that question in large part determines how you make hard decisions. Just like the hard decision we see facing Paul this morning in our passage. And so we get to see how Paul is reasoning through a difficult decision in his life and we see it in three ways. Number one, we see Paul's declaration in verse 21. And then we see Paul's, his dilemma and his desire in verses 22 to 24. And finally, it concludes with Paul's decision in verses 24 to 26. So we see Paul's declaration, his desire, the dilemma, and his decision. Paul's declaration is that famous verse, for to me to live is Christ and die is gain. And I know, I know I'm dipping in a little bit into last week's material, but really this is the springboard into everything I want to say from verses 22 to 26. When Paul says to live is Christ and die is gain, that, that's one of those New Testament verses that I call those life organizing verses. You know, there's a few of them in the New Testament. So you got Galatians 2.20 is one of them, Romans fourteen seven through eight, 2 Corinthians 5.15. So Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith by the, for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or to the Romans, he wrote in Romans 14, seven eight, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. But it's not just to the Galatians or the Romans. He said something similar to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 15. And he, speaking of Jesus, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, these are those kinds of verses. I call them stake your flag in the ground kind of verses. These are those life-organizing passages. And, and if you don't get this, if you don't get this passion for what it actually is, verses 22 to 26 of our passage this morning just would just seem like the hyper-religious ramblings of an overly committed church fanatic. Instead, what it actually is is someone seeing the end of everything that they had worked for for the last couple of decades everything they ever hoped for come crashing down and still saying he'll be okay that even though it's all falling apart he won't wouldn't you like to be that kind of person wouldn't you like to be living that kind of life now notice something those those four passages that we just went through Two of them were specific to Paul. Did you catch that? Philippians 1 and Galatians 2. He uses the first person singular pronoun. This is what he's saying. It's like his life motto. But to the Romans and the Corinthians, he said this is applicable to all Christians. He was referring to everyone being able to say that. In other words, Paul's declaration in Philippians 1:21 is not the exemption. Well, we would expect Paul to say that because you know he's Paul the apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles. Of course, to him, Christ is life and die is gain. He's Paul. No, no, it's not the exemption, he's the example to every other Christian. So, what Paul is saying is true of him, he's saying it should be true of us all, that to live is Christ and die is gain. I wonder if you've ever thought that what you use to define life also defines death. In other words, where you find your life, what you find your life in, the opposite of that thing necessarily is what death is. Does that make sense? So if for you, life is about success, then failure is death. If life is about pleasure, then pain is death. If life is about fun, then boredom is death. If life is about money, then going broke is death. If life is about youth, then growing old is death. If excitement is your life, you know, you're one of these adrenaline junkie types, then routine is death. If life is fame, then being forgotten is a death sentence. If life is happiness, then sadness is death. You see, when you think about it that way, this goes a long way in explaining why so many people feel that their lives are meaningless because they haven't become some kind of financial success. Why so many marriages fall apart because uh, it's fallen into kind of what they would call a boring routine. Why people experience a midlife crisis because they feel youth is slipping away from them because people everywhere, every day are defining their lives by these definitions whether they know it or not because they have not consciously asked the question what am I living for? And at best, these definitions will let you down and at worst, they betray you. Ultimately, if this life is life, I mean then death is death. You see, Paul, Paul says, because Christ is life, death actually is gain. Death will only give Paul the totality of what his entire life has been about anyway. This is why when life collapses all around Paul, Paul's life doesn't collapse. Because his life is Christ, his life is hidden with Christ. Turn over with me to the Book of Colossians. Uh, that's page 984 if you're using the Pew Bible. If you're not sure where that is, just turn two pages to the right, and there you are. Colossians chapter three, verses one through four. Paul is saying kind of the same kind of thing as he says in Philippians 1:21. Paul writes, "If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated." At the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, once you've decided what life is for, that puts all other decisions you have to make in some kind of perspective. But that doesn't mean you won't have hard decisions to make. Actually, if you are settled on the fact that Christ is the definition of life, you will inevitably that will inevitably bring elements into your life in the decision-making process in those hard moments that, that non-Christians will not experience. We see that dilemma in Paul himself here in verses 20 through 224. So Paul's wrestling through his dilemma and the desires of his heart. Let me look at it, verse 22. Let's look at it together. He says, I am hard-pressed between the two. Excuse me, verse 22, I sorry, at verse 23. For verse 22, he says, for if I am to live in the flesh, that's a way of saying if I stay alive, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain alive is more necessary on your account. So in these three verses, we see the internal battle that every Christian must face, right? Do I do what I want to do, or do I do what is best for others? In that moment, in that moment for you, what determines how you make your decision? Now, generally speaking, uh, you know, I'm a social scientist, psychologist, reason that there's about five ways individuals tend to make decisions, about five ways. And there are mixtures of the two, but generally speaking, you lean more towards one towards the other. So the first one would be rationalism. Are you just a a rational kind of person? You make your decisions on just what makes sense. Those are the kind of people that bust out the paper and they do the pros and cons list, right? They're asking, what's the best return on my investment? It's just real functional. What's reasonable? This mix is reasonable. This is what we do. Then there are those who are the pragmatists, right? Hey, whatever whatever works best is the best course of action. Very utilitarian, very kind of Machiavellian, right? Well, the end justifies the means, so whatever gives us the best result, that's how I decide. Then there's emotionalism. I just, this is just how I feel about it, and that's just what I'm going to do. However I feel, that's what I decide. This, by the way, is the prevailing kind of ethic in our culture, right? And it's a big thing we hear about authenticity. If I feel this way, I'm going to do it. If I don't feel this way, I shouldn't do it because that's inauthentic. So we're primarily driven by emotionalism in our culture. That's how we make our decisions. The fourth one is consumerism. Well, whatever I want, that's what I desire. I'm going to do that. And then the last one is—I just put an ism to it because it needed one more ism. It's convenience ism. Right? Just whatever is easiest for me, that's how I'm going to decide. So those are the five primary ways people tend to make decisions: decisions, rationalism, pragmatism, emotionalism, consumerism, convenience ism. But have you ever stopped to think? Just how radically counterintuitive a decision to follow Christ actually is in light of the fact that the five ways of people primarily make decisions. Now, don't get me wrong, and there's many people in this room, people have made their decision for Christ because it just seemed reasonable. You know, those are the people that love apologetics. They've been convinced this is the truth. It makes sense. It's reasonable to follow Jesus Christ. Some people have followed Christ because they had an emotional experience. Maybe they went to a a kind of a winter retreat or some kind of camp or some song in a service really touched them. And some people follow Christ because it just seems to work the best. is the moral compass of Christianity works best, so I'm going to follow Christ. Some people follow Christ because they just simply get a lot out of it. Now, again, don't get me wrong, It's okay to decide that way as far as that goes. But if at the end of the day, think about this, if at the end of the day, the primary means by which that drive, that decision-making metric is the primary means that drives your obedience to Christ, what are you going to do when Christ commands something from you that contradicts those things? So, If you follow Jesus, simply because it makes sense, it seems most reasonable, what are you going to do when your grade A, 4.0 son or daughter says, yeah, full ride to UCLA or Stanford, and they say, nah, I think I'm gonna go to the Congo as a missionary. Or what are you going to do when you feel the call to leave it all behind and take your young family into a foreign communist country where there is no church? If you follow Christ because it seems reasonable and rational, what will you do when he commands you to do something that seems irrational? If you follow Christ because it's it's kind of like emotional therapy for you, and he brings you that pleasure, what will you do when obedience to the commands of Christ actually brings you emotional pain? if you follow Christ because you see it working out for so many other people, what are you gonna do when God's promises don't really seem to be working for you? You see, if that's the primary reason we follow Christ, then our incentive will be soon taken away when some of his commands and what he calls us to do contradicts that. Most of you have read your Bibles quite a lot But can you imagine reading the Gospels for the first time? Maybe some of you can remember that. Do you remember reading uh, Mark's Gospel, for example? It's my favorite Gospel. If you read it, maybe some of you can do that this week. Read one of the Gospels as if you've never read them before. Read one of the Gospels as if you were hearing Christ for the first time. And you know what? You're going to agree... That you will not be able to think of anything less pragmatic, less convenient, less desirable, and more emotionally draining than following a crucified Savior that was hated by the world that commands your total allegiance and obedience. So here's the question. Why do Christians do it? Maybe you're not a Christian and you're going, yeah, why do you do it? Remember what Jonathan Edwards said? Christians are the kind of people that don't follow Jesus because he's useful. Christians are the kind of people that follow Jesus because he's beautiful. And because he's beautiful, it doesn't matter if he commands something that seems unreasonable. It doesn't matter if he commands something that is going to be hard and that is painful. His beauty, as Paul says in Philippians 3.8, is the surpassing value of all things. And that's why we follow him. Not because it made sense. Not because it made me feel good. Not because it makes things work from my perspective. But because Christ is the surpassing value and beautiful above all things. Notice Paul's desire in Verse 23. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire, my desire, my desire is to depart and be with Christ because that is by far and away better. Did you notice that? It's just not better to depart and be with Christ. It's just not far better to depart and be with Christ depending on your translation. It's far and away better to depart and be with Christ. So it was very clear to paul which is better so he's got two options he's got two options before him and one is way better than the other and it's the one he wants so think about this from a rational emotional pragmatic perspective that's what he should decide but does he no in in contrary to five ways that we typically make decisions, Paul says, that's not how I'm going to decide. Now, I want to highlight for you four words in these two verses. The first two come at the, at the end of verse 23. It's, it's the far better, and the second two are in the middle of verse 24, more necessary. One's far better for me. The other's more necessary for you. Because to Paul, Christ is life. He chooses the way of Christ as the deciding factor above all else. So what's the way of Christ? Let me dip into a little bit of our study in a couple of weeks. Go to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Paul writes to the Philippians. Maybe he's thinking of this as he's penning our our section this morning. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. If Jesus made his decisions like you or I tend to make our decisions, we would never know peace with God. We would never know the beauty of forgiveness. We would never know the hope of reconciliation and redemption between God and man and man and man and man and creation. See, Philippians 2, 5 through 7 What it's saying is is that God's deciding factor is not rationalism, it's not not pragmatism, it's not emotionalism, it is love for you and me because he finds us beautiful. I'm gonna get to a little bit more of that later. But what drives God's decision is not the five that tend to drive our decisions, but love for us because he finds us beautiful. And so Paul, even though his desire is one thing, he's caught in this dilemma, he reasons it through, through what's going to bring God most glory, and he makes his decision, verse 24, 26, he writes, so I'm convinced of this, he's referring to what, has, what he just thought about before, that to remain alive is more necessary to the Philippians. So he's willing to stay in the flesh, as I said, that's his way of saying stay alive, if Rome should allow it. And then verses 24 and 25, Paul's purpose would be for the Philippians progress and joy. So the first word, progress, is describing the quality and the character of the Christian life. And the second word, joy, is describing the experience of that character of their life. In other words, Paul's recognizing it's better to d- deny his own desires so that the Philippians would mature, so that Christ would be there all in all, just like it was for Paul, and, and in fact, grow in the joyous recognition that that's what life is about. Paul's deciding rubric was not, was not mere rationalism, it wasn't pragmatism, it wasn't consumerism, it wasn't even his personal wants or desires, but it was Christocentric. In other words, Christ-centered. Paul's deciding rubric was Christ-centered of the two options presented before him, which would bring God more maximum glory. Make that question a routine question you ask in your decision-making process of the two options before me, which would give God more more glory, which would bring maximum glory to God? Should I go to college? Should I go to the mission field? Should I go into politics? Should I go into business? Should I go into, uh, should I stay here? Should I, should I get married? Should I remain single? Should I date? Should I not? Which of the two options would bring more glory to God? If you are a new Christian, asking that one question will do more to help you grow and mature in your faith than than trying to memorize a dozen do's or don'ts. Just asking the question, which of the two options I have, or three or four options I have, will bring more glory to God? Friends, I wonder, how often have you asked that question and just making decisions in your life? Or at the end of the day, is it just kind of the rationalism, the pragmatism, the consumerism, the conveniences, and the emotionalism that's driving you? Because what we see here from Paul the Apostle, who's not the exemption, he's the example, he says the deciding factor is going to be what brings God most glory in this decision? So with that in mind, I want to ask you four questions Three of which come right from verses 24 to 26. And the fourth question is, is my concluding point. Question number one, first, verse 24. Are you serving others? Are you serving others? Notice what Paul says. That it was necessary for the Philippians that he stay alive. Think about that. Paul's saying, it's necessary for the Philippians that I stay alive. Let me ask the question here. How necessary are you in the lives of the Christians around you? If you were just gone all of a sudden, how long would it take them, and how deeply would they feel your absence? Early on in, in my pastoral ministry, um, you know, I'd recognize that a family or an individual hadn't been around for quite a few months maybe, and I would feel kind of bad about it and start trying to find them and reach out to them. And, and most times it was okay. There was a job transfer or a personal move or for some reason uh, they, they got plugged into another church. But every now and again, I'd get this real like snarky response. It went something like this. Yeah, it's been about five months since we were there and it took you that long to figure out we were gone. You know. And of course, as a pastor, you feel really like, ugh, I'm just lousy, I'm not a shepherd should know his sheep, and you get all that stuff, and I feel pretty horrible about it. And there's a certain sense when that ought to be the case. Until uh, an older friend, more wise and more experienced in ministry, kind of talked to me and says, Rick, have you ever thought about the fact that You not noticing that family or that individual around for so long may say more about them than it says about you. Yeah, she did call the church you pastored her home church, but did she ever act like family? You see, Paul in 1 in Corinthians 12 says that every Christian is part of the body of Christ and they all have their part to play are you playing your part in such a way that the void would be palatable if you were no longer there Now, don't, don't get me wrong this is not a, not a guilt trip to get you to sign up for service or be an usher and we're going to have like 20 ushers next week that's, that's not what that is that's not what it is at all I do ask many of you to do things though don't I but it's it's not because I'm trying to fill holes. It's because I'm jealous for you to have the joy of making much of Christ and knowing that in serving other people. I believe in God's sovereignty, and God sovereignly works through his people, but God's primary means of using and blessing his people is guess what? Through his people. So the first question we have to ask is, Am I serving others? If I want to have a Christ-centered rubric of making decisions, here are practical ways to think about whether or not that's happening. Number one, verse 24, Is it necessary for the Christians around me for my presence to be there? Because it was for Paul. Second question related to the first, Do you strive for the progress and joy in faith of others? It's a kind of a mouthful, complicated sentence, isn't it, in verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And that's because those two words are are highlighting one another. Their progress and their joy in faith. Are you serving in such a way that that's what you're serving for? This is another way of saying, are you you simply just pouring out your life into the lives of people around you? So that other people can know the joy of maturing in Christ's likeness you want to make much of Jesus in your life help others follow Jesus you want to make much of the Lord then help others do the same and you don't need to be an elder you don't need to be a scholar or a theologian you don't even need to be a veteran Christian you've been a Christian a year find somebody who's been a Christian for six months Meet with them, pour into them, share your excitement of the gospel, how God has transformed you, how you're fighting sin, how you're pursuing holiness, how you're loving his people, how you're locking arms together, how it's not just about me and Jesus and Starbucks, but me, Jesus, and his people. You could do that. Don't be so busy in your life that you can't help others make much of Jesus. Don't be so full of the good stuff of our lives that we can so easily fill it with Kids' sports, vacations, uh, community activities, and church, even church stuff can actually take us away from the task of discipleship. Have you ever thought about that? How many Bible studies are you involved in compared to how many young men or women are you discipling? Ooh, kind of tough there, isn't it? But my point simply is, we can go so full on on the good stuff and lose track of the critical stuff, am I serving in a way that is for the progress and joy in faith of others? Yes, it's good to be blessed by attending all these Bible studies, but give it away. Give it away, and you'll be doubly blessed. I've shared with you some of the most excitement I had. At three years after becoming a Christian, we've planted a church our, our senior pastor was a single 28 year old. You can imagine what kind of church that was. <laughs> but we were excited to see the progress and joy and faith of one another. And we trust the sovereignty of God for the craziness of young single 20 somethings and a 19 year old kid who is a, a youth pastor who didn't know anything, including st- I shouldn't stuff kids into the back of my mom's Century Buick to get them to Bible study. But we just had so many of them, what were we gonna do? But God is sovereign, he works all things out. Are you serving others? Are you making decisions through a Christ-centered filter? And You answer that by saying, am I serving others? Am I serving others in a way for the progress and joy in faith for them? And are you serving others in such a way, verse 26, that causes other Christians to trust Christ more? Now if you read Paul in verse 26, it actually kind of sounds arrogant because what he's saying, verse 26, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ because of my coming to you. Right? What well, Paul is simply acknowledging is because he is loving these Philippians, he's pouring out his life into them, he lives for their progress and joy in the faith, they rejoice to see him. Friends, if you can answer the first two questions in the affirmative, then this third one you can answer in the affirmative. We should always be asking, is my walk with God inspiring others to walk with God? Or is my walk with God just inspiring others to walk away, right? Am I causing others to tris- trust Christ more because of the way I live? So those three questions. Last question, the concluding question, and the most, probably maybe the most important questions is how can, you ha- how can you have this life? How can you have this life? So you might say, okay, I get it. Since Paul could declare that Christ was his life, he could face anything. He was dominated by his love for Christ, and this singular love allowed him to make all the hard decisions in his life and face whatever consequences could come. This was his great passion. But but, but how do you get your heart fixed into that? You don't have to turn there, but I think the answer is going to be in John chapter 17. Jesus is, uh, I call it the Lord's Prayer. I know we often think of that in Matthew's Gospel, but in John 17, I think this is the Lord's Prayer, because Jesus is praying for the disciples, and in John 17, he's praying for his disciples and those who would believe because of them, and in verse 19, Jesus says this, and for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Now, both those words there in the ESV, consecrate and sanctified, translate the Greek word hagiosmos, which means holy, which means set apart for a certain purpose. What Jesus is saying is that I live for them. I set myself apart for them. I sanctify myself for them just to see them sanctified and holy. Holy. You know, Olympic athletes are everywhere in the news today. Can you imagine what it takes to be an Olympic athlete? They have to holy, they have to sanctify their lives. They set set apart their lives for everything, subservient to the one goal. Want to get married? Nope, sorry, can't get married. Got to train for the Olympics. Want to get a promotion at work? Nope, my career doesn't matter because I'm training for the Olympics. Honey, let's start a family. Can't do that. I'm training for the Olympics. Every aspect of their lives is subservient to the one goal. They are set apart. That's what Jesus is saying in John 17. I sanctify myself for them. What he's saying is, I'm all in. I am all in for them. Everything I do is in service to this one thing, leaving behind my place by the Father's side, leaving the eternal halls of heaven to walk a dirty, filthy world that hates me, taking on human form. I do this all for one thing. I've sanctified myself for this one thing. So you can know life, so you can know true happiness, so you can know true joy, true delight, true pleasure, so you can have it all. That means when we look on that cross, that's God saying, There is nothing I will not do to make this happen for you. There is no price I'm not willing to pay. There is no length I'm unwilling to go. The cross is God's way of saying, for to me to live is you. And to die, literally, is to gain you. And the Christian says, well, if for you to live is me, then for me to live is you. And if you can say, for you to live is him, then you have all that you need to make all the hard decisions in your life. Because no matter what, your joy is untouchable. It is indestructible. So the circumstances of life, they can't wreck you. They cannot permanently knock you down. You don't need to have everything you want. You don't need to have everything that you desire. You can give your life away. You can let go of it all because you have the most important thing you've ever could possibly dream to have. If you can say, For me to live is Christ and die is gain. Let's pray. Father, it's so amazing how through even mundane things like watching Paul make decisions, we can learn some of the keys of what it means to live a Christ-centered life. Father, help us to recognize maybe the ways we make decisions in our lives and and to to repent if, if there's no aspect of Christ in there or your glory considered. Help us to realize we are not making decisions the way you want us to. Thank you for Paul modeling not just what it is to define life as Christ, but how to live in light of that in very practical ways like just making decisions. Father, we want to do it all because we want it to be true of us as well. That at Christ Community Church, to live is Christ and die is gain. Would you help us do that this day? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org dot org